Revolution will not be televised. It will be live. What about the invasion? The invasion will be televised and podcast. This will not be live. This will be 20 years in the making. Welcome to episode 29 of First Strike, the Invasion podcast. I'm Siskoid. I'm Bass. And this is the show that covers the DC Comics crossover from 1988, Invasion, and all its tie-ins. And today's episode is all about Starman number six, and that's the Will Payton Starman. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the purple and orange Starman. We're deep in the aftermath. We're almost up to Invasion number three at this point. This one's called Fortunes of War by writer Roger Stern, penciler Tom Lyle, inker Bob Smith, letterer Bob Pinaja, colorist Juliana Ferreter, and it's edited by Bob Greenberger with a cover by Tom Lyle. So let's look at this old-timey cover. I feel like it's an old-timey kind of style with all the, the bubbles on the right-hand side, sort of a Tales from the Vault kind of... Yeah, yeah, no, it has this... Uh, well, you know the early crossovers? We always had, like, the Justice League on one side and the Justice Society on the other and, you know, stuff like that. Or, the, the you know, the Freedom Fighters on one side. And that's what it looks like. And it's, yeah, it's kind of reminiscing of that kind of... Era. And among these uh, guest stars is, um, well, first of all, right on the main picture, not in the bubbles, in the main picture is Green Lantern Hal Jordan. And since we didn't have a chance to talk about Green Lantern, uh, especially because he doesn't have a series at this point, uh, then uh, we'll be covering him in the second part of the episode. So first part of the episode, of course, the issue itself. Second part, we'll talk about what Green Lantern means to us generally. And on the side, we've got uh, Bubbles featuring Blue Beetle, Power Girl, uh, the Atom, and we'll call them heroes if you want, uh, the Power Elite. The Power Elite. Yeah. I, I have notes. <laughs> <laughs> and the picture itself is uh, Starman and Green Lantern sort of bracing uh, part of the Sydney Opera House that's uh, falling apart. Yeah. Although the cover's so busy, it never really registers in my mind that that's what's happening. You know, sort of got a flashback of an All-Star Squadron issue where they're fixing the Perisphere. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, that's kind of what it feels like and looks like. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. But yeah, this is Sydney. It's the Opera House. So those, you know, the trademark... What are those shells? Kind of like uh, sailboats, or I don't know. There's some. There's yeah, some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's on the harbor, it's supposed to be a sailboat. Yeah, maybe. Paul Hicks, tell us, what is the point of that architecture? Other than being beautiful, which yeah, is which is a point enough. I agree. It's a very distinctive landmark. Uh, but what's it all about? We're not doing research. <laughs> <laughs> we see the nice costume, the the Starman uh, costume, which is a little bit odd if you're really into classic. You know, there's a tall kind of boot and shorter boot and a long glove and a shorter glove. And the star's basically upside down. Well, upside down. Well, there is no real up or down for a star, but, you know. <laughs> the five-point star is usually pointing up. Yeah. And here it points at the crotch. Yeah, which is fine, which is fine. Yeah. I mean... Flaunted if you have it. That's a lesson I... I learned in uh, from uh, Ohad Mornat, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, it's it's a very busy cover. There's a uh, the superheroes kind of pop on it because the rest is pretty uh, pretty bland. Coloring is uh, pretty blue and gray, and and so we really see 
what Green Lantern is doing and the costumes really pop. So I I guess it's a nice I think you're exactly right. The background is so white and gray. I that's why I never see the the opera house. The background just disappears. It's all a blur of grays and whites and pale blues. Ready to get into the synopsis? Yes. A lot happens. In the wake of the aliens retreat, Starman Will Payton is in Sydney, Australia. When the opera house is about to collapse on workers, he shores up the structure with the help of Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, and Power Girl. He fanboys about GL knowing who he is and then meets the Atom who also gives him some encouragement. Now back in the States, the power elite is torturing the Durlin that had captured Starman from under their noses in the previous issue. When it proves resistant to their interrogation techniques, they determine to make a purse out of a sow's ear by drugging the Durlin, setting it loose on Salt Lake City, and making their debut as All-American Heroes. In the meantime, Starman has hitched a ride on Blue Beetle's bug and returned to Arizona. He touches base with his sister, who's relieved to see him, and his mother, who didn't notice he was gone because she's been in lockdown at her place of work contributing tech to the war effort. Will hardly has time to relax when he sees his enemies kill the Durlin on CNN, making themselves look like heroes. He tracks them to their tour bus, because that's really what it looks like, and fights them. A fight he seems to be winning handily until the gene bomb explodes, as it must at the end of every Aftermath issue. Well, yeah, that's basically it. So you get a lot of guest stars, but it's all in that front part. I, I, I kind of felt it read like a uh, like a spin-off series. You know, like if, if Fraser was in Cheers okay. and then was saying goodbye to everybody and then got to Seattle and then Fraser started up. Okay. It kind of feels like that, you know, because you have like this ending of this one story where, you know, he's the new guy, he's... You know, talking to the Green Lantern and the Atom and, and Power Girl, who looks horrible, by the way. Still the female mullet? Oh, my God. You had that problem with her other appearances in uh, Firestorm and in the other Starman issue. Well, she's she's basically a fashion victim at this point. I mean, she has this weird... It gets worse, because at some point she's going to be wearing like that white and blue one with the headband and the big shoulder pad and... Uh, like armored shoulder pad and I want to say like a capelet. My lord. Yeah, like an Atlantean type design. <laughs> well, I mean, it, some of it's fine. It's just that I think they were looking for who is Power Girl at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is she the daughter of... Arion, Lord of Atlantis. They had to because they killed off Earth 2 and the Earth 2 Superman, so she couldn't be his cousin anymore. Basically Earth 2 Supergirl. She's not a Kryptonian, but <laughs> I like her Kryptonian. Yeah. You know, I like the boob window. I'm fine with that. But, oh, in this, I mean, the, the weird hairstyles of the... And there was also the slinky white and yellow or gold uh, one piece. So I think at this point, they're just trying to differentiate her from Superman. She, she can't be connected to Superman, so they can't do the red cape. Yeah. I think that's what was going on. I mean, she gets better, and I love her later on, uh, when she rejoins the Justice Society when they come back. And, oh, that's all red. But Power Girl just looks horrible in this. <laughs> horrible. And the only reason why I'm so ick by this is because I like Power Girl. I like the other Supergirl who's, you know, who's a woman. She's mature. She's, you know, not as naive and, you know, and she's full powered and she's, you know, I like her. But in this thing, she looks like, you know, this mom who's trying to be cool and it just doesn't work. Well, the hairstyles in the 1980s when they tried to apply them to superheroes. Oh, and then green lantern shows up he was he was actually in uh, invasion number two so he's around it's not like he left earth to guy gardner no exactly at this point he was starring in uh, strip in action comics weekly so uh he's appearing regularly 
weekly, in fact. But he doesn't have his own Green Lantern series, so uh, he's just one of many characters that have strips in Action Comics Weekly. Green Lantern Corps ended some months before Invasion, I, I, I want to say April, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't get another Green Lantern series for another year, and that would be actually the Emerald Dawn miniseries, the soft reboot, and then he would get another series. Wait, this is kind of weird. I always thought Green Lantern as being one of those, you know, founding blocks of, mm-hmm. you know, the DC universe, and, yeah. and uh, not having a Green Lantern comic book for so long. Not with his name on it, but... Uh, he was appearing regularly. Maybe that was the, a way to keep him going, to keep it unbroken. Maybe, yeah. But it's kind of fun to see him in this uh, episode of Starman. It feels like an episode. It feels like a TV show. It, it reads like a TV show. I mean, he he finishes up one thing and then, you know, changes back to his ordinary clothes and then goes to meet his sister, you know, calls his mom. <laughs> Who calls his mom in a comic book? He calls his mom. He, she's at work. Yeah, you know, I think Starman was very much a Marvelized kind of character, a young hero just finding his way. And in this, he gets to meet the lower A-team of the DC Universe, who are not necessarily at their Silver Age peak, but he is meeting with these well-established heroes, and, and they know who he is, and yeah, they're encouraging him, and you know they're, maybe they're following his career, or so he thinks. So he's starstruck, pardon the pun. Even Blue Beetle has you know a more legit career. I just I just like how you know his interactions with these heroes kind of solidify not only his position as a new hero, but also the status of the other heroes. You know he he's fanboying over Green Lantern. As he should, right? And he's, you know, he's all in awe of Power Girl, as he should. And he thinks that Blue Beetle is this awfully nice guy, as he should. And it kind of solidifies everybody's characters. I kind of, re- I really like that little part at the beginning. Interactions that aren't about punching something or, or blasting something. It's just, you know, we're going back home and, you know, this little... I really like that. It had a homey feeling. What did you think of the Power League? You said you had notes. Well, no, wait, the, uh, let's let's just uh, put the Power Elite into context because our last Starman show was quite a long ways away. They're a group of villains, or posing as heroes, but they are villains, a bit like Major Force in Captain Atom. They were supposed to get all of Starman's powers, like super soldiers or something, but the satellite that was supposed to deliver this cosmic energy uh, was whacked out of alignment, and Will Payton got all the powers. They've got some powers, but you know, not the full complement. In the last issue of Starman, they tried to siphon off his power, which they think is rightfully theirs. But in this, they are uh, sort of staging a superheroic debut. So it's just for the media. Yeah, they're being, they're basically being, what's his name from uh, uh, The Incredibles? You know, he's creating a problem to go solve it, but not really solve it. Because, right. you know, the power elite, they knew how to beat the Durlin because he was, you know, he, they knew exact everything about him. Slightly drugged. So they're, they're basically posers. They're, I mean, my, my thing with these kinds of, and, and it's, it's not just the power elite. I mean, the power elite, they're, they just look like disposable villains. Well, it doesn't help that their costumes are basically orange jumpsuits. I know. They're not even costumes. I mean, if you're going to stage your coming out party, <laughs> they're not even uniforms. They're no. they're they're basically beige. I mean, their costumes are worse. I mean, they're not even costumes. They they make the the Ghostbusters look, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. costumes or yeah. superheroes. So they're disposable super villains that their motives are kind of weird. They're just jealous, 
and they just want to be popular. And it's it's because I don't like posers. I don't like people mm-hmm. who do that. And, and as opposed to all those people who I like posers. Well, I think you can recognize posers. Or you could not see them. Okay, yeah. Everybody says, oh, that's a poser. Well, you know, everybody's on, on board. But some posers don't. I mean, some of them are good. Some of them are good. They, they seem like they know what they're doing or whatever, but they, they really don't. And you can, ugh. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, I don't I, I don't really get their powers. They're, they're so the same yet different that you have to look at mustaches and, and, and if oh, yeah, they're a lady yeah. to know who does what. The only power elite I do like is this one lady. I don't know her name. She just like hulks out and becomes big and strong. That's the only one I remember. You know, having read this just yesterday, that's still the only one I remember. Because she's kind of cool. She kind of becomes like this super strength beast. Uh, Well, early on beast from uh, the X-Men, you know, where he only had like big feet and big hands. And uh, I liked her, you know, but the rest of them, the guy who has thermal hand powers and the guy who can levitate stuff and i don't i don't know i don't care (laughs) just and they're and they have the gall to call themselves the power elite elite so i was happy when they got their ass uh handed to them by starman well it's interesting that uh, even though you know the invasion interrupts starman's regular plot those guys were always going to go after him uh, but the fact that he gets uh, captured by the Durlins and uh, escapes from that situation thanks to Firestorm and Power Girl and finds himself in the action and comes back home and, you know, this basically this is where we're at. And still, the villains have captured one of the invaders and they're using him for their own purposes. So it still ties in to the invasion. It's very much an invasion tie-in issue. We rebuild Australia, but we're also using and abusing prisoners of war yeah because they it really feels like the power elite were doing their thing during the invasion like this story never ended and actually the the story is part of what's going on Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a very nice crossover good job roger stern yeah very much so that's what i liked you know what i liked also the mom i like the mom he calls the mom she's at work she works in like this big tech factory thing she has a hard hat she's like yeah did you eat you're your sister did you eat you all right you're home? All right, I'll be home soon or something. And she's so badass. That mom. That mom is awesome. Yeah, I think one of the things that was pretty great about those first issues of Starman was that he did have a family. And there were character dynamics there that hadn't really been done much before. The only thing I didn't really get, and maybe because I'm, you know, I'm not that smart, but the only thing I didn't really get is why he had to, you know, like, uh, Starman, he drops off someplace after Blue Beetle just drops him off. Yeah, like, why does he get himself dropped off in the desert? Yeah, why did and he have to hitch a ride yeah. with this unknown guy who he didn't, he doesn't really listen to him. He has this flashback thinking of the invasion while he's driving. And I, I, don't, I, I don't really know why we had to have this little bit in there. Well, I think he left his real clothes. Underneath a rock. Yeah, in the desert. I think he, that's where he left his clothes in the previous issue. But then, why doesn't he just, you know, fly? You know, take them, fly off to yeah, phone then, booth or something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just uh, maybe give him a little bit of respite so he can, you know, recall what happened in Invasion for those people who aren't reading the miniseries. Well, that's that's what, the one thing I didn't really get because you see, you actually have this bit part of conversation with the older man in the in the i mean if you just wanted to have this time where he's in a truck and he's thinking i don't understand why we had to show the other the driver 
he could have just been a you know like a shadow or something just, hey, get in yeah i don't know i think it's a little comic beat it's got personality you know by the time we get back to, to seeing that guy he's on oh well my third wife so he's been rambling all this time it's a, it's a small joke i was like meh it, it's just it's just there but other than that i mean it's a i really enjoyed the comic i i do i was gonna say something about the colors but i think it's just the power elite that i don't like <laughs> Everywhere they're, they're sort of orange. Yeah, they're all orange, and the Durlins are orange, and their backgrounds are orange, and they have orange thoughts, and there's a lot of orange. Was orange on sale? <laughs> You're right, the orange thoughts, because the flashback is all in these orange and yellow tones. I don't know. I don't know. So we're glad to see the red bus, I think. And I think this is one of the better parts of the issue, where the, you know the fight with the bus, where the elite sort of shoot off their own roof. Yeah. You see that they're idiots. They are idiots with powers. Or just a sonic boom when Starman arrives. You just got to them so quickly, it just, you know, broke every window. Some of those half-page panels, really some of the better moments. I like that, and I like, uh, you know, when they're interrogating the Durlin, and he squeezes, you know, he turns into a lizard thing that squeezes out of his humanoid shape's neck. Like something out of the the thing. Yeah, it kind of kind of shows off the Durlin's powers and you they probably have like these combat forms yeah because even in the fight uh, that's uh, on cnn he's using that form we don't dwell on it and that's a good thing it just happens we don't need to, to see it it's not their comic yeah he's still using that dragon form yeah because it has wings so i guess it's like a combat form especially since this guy was an probably an infiltration specialist we've seen the durlins are seem to be specialized as they should. It makes sense. If I mean, if we had a, a nice little group of shapeshifters, this is probably what we would do with it. You know, and some some of them are you know interrogation specialists that you know disguise themselves as uh, seductive people or you know family members or they go on to background checks and you know and and it's kind of nice to see the Durlins being smart and you know tactical and even if they're drugged. Finally, Gene Bomb moment. Yeah. This did the same thing that Captain Adam did. Which is show the polarization, but still put colors in there. Yeah. So what'd you think? Because I, I like that effect. I don't hate it. It's not like what they did with the other comics, but I think it looks good. It does look good. It kind of looks like if you were reversing the shadows and putting the colors in the shadows, mm -hmm. or I don't... Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing, but it, it works with the effect. So I wish they'd done that all the way through. I think the black and whites look good. Yeah. But sometimes they're a little plain. Yeah. Especially over time, so... Because we weren't sure with the Captain Adam panel, because he was sort of in a reflective pose. It wasn't dynamic. But here you see the explosion over the horizon. Yeah. It is a kerpow moment. It's in, it's during a battle, so there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of action and this bomb going off during this part of the battle... I mean, it's it's a very nice. I kind of wish it was a, a full pager, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. bigger, a half a pager. Yeah, I really like it, actually. Yeah. If we go on into final thoughts on the issue, once again, Roger Stern proves how good a superhero writer he he was. He was also writing a Superman book at this point, as well as Power of the Atom. One of the best superhero writers of the '80s. Oh yeah. Good construction, good character moments. Uh, he knows how to deliver those kerpow moments. I first met him when he was writing Avengers in the earlier, uh, in the 80s. And that's also a great run. So I really rate Roger Stern. I definitely like him too. I like the way he sets up moods and can really get to these, you know, pinnacle moments. But also I, I, I really like his day-to-day -day stuff, you know, like the calling of the mom and the, the meeting of the sister and the seeing the dog. And 
all these things, it's very well balanced all the way through. I really like them. We'll take a small break. A little bit. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Green Lantern franchise. Yes. We'll be talking about Tomar Ray. Sure, why not? <laughs> we'll talk about Boudica and Drick. And Green Man. After this. Recently overheard on the Who's Who podcast, being said by the irredeemable Shag. For me, because, you know, she's a crazy, hot, raging woman, and now I can't not see that. But if you want more on her, check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast. And also, someone, for the love of God, start a Will Payton blog, please. Um, just saying. All right. All right, Shag. You don't have to beg. Well, that could be nice. Anyways, here you go, Shag, just for you. Monthly. The Starman Adventure Hour. Adventure. Wait a minute. Uh, I like Starman and all, but I don't know if I can talk for an entire hour about Will Payton. Huh. I know. I'll include another great 80s character I love. Mark Shaw, Manhunter. The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. Available monthly on iTunes and at starman-manhunter.headspeaks.com. Also part of the Headcast Network. Come join the fun. We're back and we're talking about Green Lantern. He appears as a guest star in the Starman issue. As you know, across this entire podcast series, uh, we've liked to, to spend time to talk about characters and what they mean to us and what stories we might have read and have influenced us. And Green Lantern hasn't had a turn yet and deserves one, regardless of whether or not he's in a uh, Justice League movie. <laughs> Let's start by giving Hal Jordan his due. He's the original uh, Green Lantern Corps member from Earth. Yeah. Not the original character named Green Lantern, but the first core member, or the, the one we think about when we think of Green Lantern normally. Uh, and he may not be your favorite, but let's give him his due. Because this is one of the characters that uh, kicked off the Silver Age along with uh, the Flash. Mm -hmm. He became what we call relevant uh, in the early 70s with uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow, which is a comic that still resonates to this day. Then his series became a team book later on uh, in the 80s and became Green Lantern Core with a cast of Green Lanterns. Then, like I said, about a year from Invasion, uh, Emerald Dawn gives him a soft reboot, a new origin, and gives him a DUI in there to make him a more human character, perhaps. And from there, there's a big explosion of Green Lantern comics. And in that boom, Hal Jordan has his own series, Jon Stewart has his own series, Guy Gardner has his own series, there's a Green Lantern Corps quarterly, and then Kyle Rayner becomes Green Lantern on the back of that. So Green Lantern has a really good run in the 90s, just after this. So you're right, uh, Bass, that, that it's kind of strange that he doesn't have his own series at this point. So we're in a transition stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And today the Green Lantern concept still has uh, some popularity uh, thanks to that second boom that came with the Jeff Johns era, the Sinestro Corps War, uh, all of that uh, that really built up the mythology. And uh, that got me back into the character, really, after uh, having gotten into him in the first place in the 90s. So what do you think of Hal Jordan? Well, he's, I'd say, one of my top fives. Ooh. Yeah, I like him. Really? Uh, yeah, I like him. I like him because he's, uh, you know, he's pilot in his former life. You know, he's this type of jock. You know, he's like yeah. this person who only basically thinks of himself and uh, is given power. I, I like these superheroes that gets this moral compass where they understand they have to fight for, you know, weaker people. 
or people who can't do it themselves. And they get, he's been given great power. I mean, with this ring, and you kind of see his real sense of moral fiber, or or I don't want, I don't want to call it moral fiber. I, I just he's just a good guy, even if he's a bit of a you know a jock and an asshole. He's really a nice guy. Sorry, I gotta run. Make yourself at home, okay? There's uh water in the tap. And uh, learns to you know help people, and doesn't use the you know the ring for his personal gain or. I mean, the ring chose him. Well, the ring had two criteria. So there was honesty and bravery that were the ones touted. So he's the bravest man. He, he's he's Daredevil. He's uh, the, the man with no fear. But he's also got to be honest. So a villain can't fill those shoes. And we've seen what happens when, when that's the case, with Sinestro being the example. Well, that's one. But you're right that he is kind of a dumbass. He is. And I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, maybe he wasn't characterized that way to start with necessarily, but uh, when you look at the other heroes of the era, you've got uh, Batman who's super smart, the Flash is a scientist, the Atom is a scientist, and then you have Green Lantern. Uh, he's a pilot. I'm not saying that being a pilot is easy. I'm not saying you, you can be dumb and be a pilot. You should be smart. But it does put him in a different category of skill sets, more of physical uh, skill than intellectual. And over time, he's sort of been represented as the, the dumber of the uh, of the Justice Leaguers, the politically dumber, the intellectually dumber, even though that's a pretty smart group. And there's that idea that he's always getting hit in the head that's a recurring gag. It is. There are two visual gags in old Green Lantern comics, and that's getting hit in the head and butt shots. Yeah. <laughs> he gets more butt shots than Wonder Woman in Justice League. Yeah, but he's been over butt shotted uh, by Nightwing. He's now the butt Standard. of the DC universe. <laughs> the former butt. Yeah, Green Lantern was the Silver Age butt. Well, he has this nice, you know, cheeky little... You know, that they both have that similar costume that doesn't have shorts on the outside. I think they, that may be the reason for the butts. Baseball player butts. Eh, well, you know, not my expertise. Not mine either, but I can recognize a nice butt when I see one. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, hitting the head. But he's not, he, he's not stupid. He's just not the same type of smart. You know, he's like a... Because people have also taken him to task for the kinds of creations he makes with his ring. Uh, but I think that's more a problem of the in which they were drawn. His lack of imagination, if you will. So the, he, the ring can make anything, but he uses it to create dustpans. And, and baseball bats. And baseball bats and... Very simple shapes. Yeah. Whereas John Stewart, he's an architect. He has... Uh, more evolved, well, except in the cartoon. In the cartoon, he was even simpler. Yeah. And then uh, Cal Rayner, he's a comics artist. He has a manga thing where he's always making, like, suits of armor and, 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 and you know, kaijus. And... He's at the other end of the scale. There, you see, there seems to be so much detail in his creations that it seems inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Guy Gardner who's, well, he's the dumbass. He's the real dumbass. <laughs> he's the one that actually has brain damage. But how's the playa? Yeah, one of the problems he has with Guy Gardner is that he's sort of stole his girlfriend. Did he not? And then there's the problematic Arisia, who is like a 14-year-old Green Lantern who ages herself uh, with the ring so she can date uh, Hal Jordan. That was problematic. And he's like, she's physically 18, so it's okay. No, it isn't. Aliens, right? I don't know. We, we can chalk it up to aliens. And then they eventually really shit on Hal Jordan because he becomes Parallax, you know, a major villain. Yeah. After the destruction of Coast City. They always do that with uh, super overpowered superheroes. Like, uh, everybody, I mean, everybody who really thinks that Superman is overpowered always figure out a way to turn Superman bad. And Green Lantern is the same thing. I mean, he became Parallax 
after the yellow thing happened, because uh, originally Green Lantern was... Yellow was impervious to whatever the ring was trying to do. Mm. So if you had a yellow jacket, he couldn't you know, grab onto your jacket. And then that went away. They fixed the impurity. And, and with every overpowered superhero, we always have like this stupid, easily found you know, weakness. The first Green Lantern, I mean, uh, Alan Scott, his, his weakness was wood. I mean, you could hit him with a branch. You know, he could do anything. So it, it, they always have this, this stupid, stupid, easy to find weakness. So the power isn't so overpowered anymore. They took that away. And then all of a sudden uh, we have this, well, they kind of turned the yellow impurity into that became fear. And, and that's the start of a beautiful thing, in my opinion, for the Green Lantern core and, and everything Green Lantern related. But you have this now superhero who's so overpowered. He went nuts. Like, you know, you turn Superman nuts and all of a sudden the earth yeah. blows up. And so they basically did the same thing with Al Jordan. The retcon was that Parallax was actually a monster living inside the power battery. And that monster could possess you. So And Jeff Johns would later, you know, make... Parallels between that and, for example, the Star Sapphire, who also had that Predator persona. So they sort of found a way for Hal Jordan to be forgiven, redeemed. Because readers need to forgive him. Uh, you know, he becomes Parallax, he kills the whole Green Lantern Corps, creates Zero Hour, more or less. And then in Final Night, he has to give his life. Comes to his senses and kills the, the destroys the Sun Eater. Then they turn him into the new Spectre, and from there, he's on the road to resurrection. Yeah, it's the road to redemption. I mean, the story of Al Jordan, if you just look at, not the Green Lantern necessarily, but just Al Jordan, he's been through so much. I mean, he's been through the ringer twice, three times. I mean, he's been... I mean, his run as the Spectre was so gut-wrenching and, and heartbreaking sometimes. I mean, he had it rough. I really think that the actual reason they parallaxed them is because they wanted to bring in a new Green Lantern. Uh, they'd been doing that all over, you know, whether it's uh, Superman, Reign of the Superman or Batman uh, giving his spot to Azrael after Nightfall. There, there's a new Green Arrow in this era. There's a new. There's already been a new Flash since since Crisis. Marvel's been doing it as well. So uh, this is just how to get a younger, uh, new character in the role. But I think Kyle Rayner has had more legs than a lot of these replacement characters. You know, aside from Wally West, I think he probably lasted the longest. And maybe it's because there are so many Green Lanterns, and you can have many at the same time. So when the old guy comes back, you don't have to revert to be calling yourself Nightwing or or get your own series, but as Azrael or as Superboy. Yeah, and that's why they had this. I think that's why they have because if you if you read these old uh, Justice League car comic books where the yeah. Grant Morrison JLA where Wally West is the Flash and Kyle Reiner is, uh, and these two have this great dynamic in these comic books because they're both around the same age. And they both, you know, see these icons they're basically playing with. You have this one scene where, you know, Wally gets touched by Batman. And he's like, whoa, 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 Batman touched me? I'm, I'm going to die, right? Because Batman touched me. This is, I, this cannot go well. And, you know, and these guys were great. So much so that they kind of transported them back. They tried to have that in the Titans or new, new, new Teen Titans. Or I don't know, because Kyle was in Titans for a while and whatever. But they had this great dynamic, and yeah, he's been through a lot, though. I mean, he became Ion, he became the White Lantern, and he became part of the new, new, new Guardians. He's had a, a, a nice road also. So, I mean, you can look at Al Jordan, look at his, his road to redemption and, and becoming uh, the Green Lantern again, and, and look at Kyle Reiner's way of becoming, and you see, like, two great stories. And not that much with, uh, you know, John Stewart and Guy Gardner. 
Yeah, they what? they have like two things happen to them. And... <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, uh, John's had. I'll say it right here. John Stewart is my favorite. You like the architect, the, the old Navy SEAL. That's a little more recent. Where he's a Marine, I, I don't like that so much. There's something about black characters, especially those born in the 70s, uh, that they're sort of trapped inside of certain stereotypes. And that can be kind of disturbing. There's a lot of black exploitation inspired characters. So you've got your, your black uh, Goliath, your black lightning, uh, Luke Cage. Power Man, you know? Yeah. They often have black in front of their names, which is problematic in and of itself. Uh, they're inspired by black exploitation, whether that's a Shaft or something else. And it doesn't help that they were written by uh, white men. And then they always seem to be in urban stories, as if black people could only live in the ghetto. Yeah. And it does speak to a reality that does exist, but it can't all be like that. Exactly. So John Stewart being an architect, which is not the kind of job that writers at the time would have given to a black character, you know, straddles a certain line. There's the, always the danger of writing your black character as if they were white, sort of ignoring where they came from. So there's that danger. But with the John Stewart that I met at the time that I met him, uh, I didn't feel that was a problem. So there's at least a contrast with the other black characters of the era. And I found that interesting. It is. But I guess I really fell in love with the character in... And this isn't going to be easy to talk about because the writer of that series and a lot of Green Lantern comics uh, now are tainted by having been written by Gerard Jones, who has since been charged with child pornography and all that. We're not going to talk about that, but it's hard to talk about Green Lantern without mentioning his work. And for uh, Jon Stewart, at least, his series, Green Lantern Mosaic, uh, was... Such a strange and quirky, bizarre, almost a Vertigo-style Green Lantern comic, and I love weird comics. Because they needed something for Jon Stewart to do in this era. So uh, they put him on Oa, and for you know, there was a, like a storyline that, that covered this, but uh, there were uh, lots of little pieces of planets or pieces of towns, including from Earth, that wound up on Oa, and it became a community. And he was charged by the Guardians uh, of running this thing. So that's where the architect comes in, where the smart man comes in, where the urban developer comes in, uh, acts as an ambassador, and really did make his character richer. And he had to navigate these currents uh, and make sure everybody got along and uh, relating it to his own experience as a black man in white America or in a white, possibly in a white business, since this was how it was played. That's really where Jon Stewart grabbed me. And then he showed up in the cartoon. So I was stoked, even though his power tricks weren't necessarily all that visually interesting, he was a strong character on the show. Yeah, that's basically the only place I do know him from, because uh, the only other place I saw John in was uh, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and he's like more of this background character. First thing I thought when I saw John Stewart was uh, they fixed this ugly Green Lantern suit. I just really liked this suit better than Al Jordan's. And the cartoon really makes him more of a Marine than an architect. That's where it's from. And the black man with a military background is more of a, a modern stereotype, but it, it is a stereotype. It is. And yes, a lot of America's uh, fighting forces are pulled from minorities. And But again, it's you know, it's one way of getting out of the ghetto, and that's, again, part of that same stereotype. And it is true to life, so a lot of black characters in fiction should probably share in that. But Jon Stewart was a different character and seemed to have a different sort of background or a different journey before becoming a superhero. So putting him back on that well-worn track kind of robs something from the character. So anyway, that all that makes him 
my favorite Green Lantern, which isn't to say there aren't a lot of other great ones, especially, you know, the smaller parts. I love uh, Kilowog. Who doesn't? Name me a person that doesn't like Kilowog. I like Salak. Salak? Salak? Not as a person. The arms? What yeah, is it? Not as a person, but as a look. It's a very alien look. I remember playing sort of a space opera role-playing game back in the 80s, and I based my alien character's look uh, on Salax. And if I go into my favorite, more obscure Green Lanterns, I'm a fan of Boudicca. She's this massive Amazon. I'm a fan of Drick, the undead Green Lantern. His ring just won't let him die. So he's sort of is a Green Lantern zombie. Um... But a sweet zombie, not a Black Lantern. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean everybody's been a Green Lantern. Uh, you know, there's a planet Green Lantern. There's a Green Lantern that's just spores. There's a blind Green Lantern who, you know, seems to project sound instead of uh, a light. There's a, there's a machine. There's a magical guy. There's there's a virus. There's a Green Lantern virus. There's this one Green Lantern. I, I Right now, I can't remember his name. I should remember his name. But the Daxamite Green Lantern, to me, always seemed like an overpowered character. He was basically Superman with a ring. Yeah, so damn yat. So damn yat. Yeah. So damn yat. The times I did read him, he felt like a like a callback to dumb dumb Al Jordan. You know, he was he he didn't have to be smart. He could just punch. What about Monel? Was Monel? Uh... Monel was a Green Lantern in the last Legion series. Oh, I And he himself thought it was too much and had to give up the Green Lantern ring. Well, Monel would do that. <laughs> right? Monel would do that. Well, I think everybody could be a Green Lantern for a while. But I don't think they, they want to be a Green Lantern for... Apparently, it takes a lot out of you. Well, from Jeff Johns on, there are rings flying around trying to select new Green Lanterns because once you are, you're marked for death or dismemberment. But still, I mean, I know Jeff gets a lot of flack for a lot of stuff. Dismemberment being the, the main... <laughs> I mean, that can be fixed. Just stop just tearing off people's arms. Please. But there is this creation of the whole spectrum of emotions and uh, the colors. And, you know, we have lanterns of every color. And, and they created, in, in some of those, really complex, fun characters. And I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed that, you know, yellow became the, the color of fear and that red become rage. And, and, you know, indigo is just, I don't know what, compassion or so, some com kind of weird stuff. And it's kind of weird because sometimes it's tough love. and Well, they empathize so uh, they can... Take the powers of the others? It's all I remember is Nock. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed that thing where... And some of them combined together become greater power. You know, if you put a Green Lantern and Blue Lantern together, Blue being hope and Green being willpower, all of a sudden you have hope and willpower together and just boosts everything up. You know, rage is, is so pure and it's not even coming from the ring. It's basically coming out of their face and... It's guts spilling, and and I, I really enjoy all that spectrum. There was only one greed. But then again, he's so lonely, he created constructs of others, but it's greed still overpowers everything, so they're not real. It's all his. Do you think that um, that whole color wheel stuff is uh, it adds a lot of mythology to the Green Lanterns, but is it innately superior to the you know Green Lanterns as cops, as a police precinct? Well, it's different. It's, I don't know if it's better or if it's worse. Uh, it's just different. I mean, um, all of a sudden you're giving a lot of power to a lot of things. So instead of having this one police force who's basically making sure nobody's, you know, killing each other for nothing, you then have a police force dealing with other superpowered, you know, ring bearers who have other agendas and, you know, some of them have similar agendas. I mean, Sinestro's 
basic thought was ruled by fear, which is a way of doing things. It's not a good way of doing things. I don't think that's how you move forward. I think that's how you stay still. You're paralyzed by fear. You can't go forward, but it's a nice way of keeping the peace. You know, fear is a great way. But, you know, you can also rule by hope. But then again, that's kind of a weird thing where the Blue Lanterns are they're only useful when they're combined to the Green Lanterns. Yeah. So I think it, it makes maybe for more complex stories, more different types of stories than police uh, stories. But you can still have that cop, beat cop type feel to the Green Lantern Corps. I mean, willpower is not really an emotion. It's control of emotion, right? So uh, they still are the cops somewhere else in there. They're, they're not, what is willpower? It's, it's basically being able to, you know, combat fear, being able to not giving in to stupid love. You know, love is great, but not stupid love. You know, stupid love makes you do stupid things. And I think the Green Lanterns are there to make sure everybody goes forward. That's why they're always clashing with the Sinistro Corps. And they won't give in to rage also. That's where the big clashes are. But, you know, with the rest, they can deal with it. Yeah, I like this whole storyline. But it does put the Green Lantern Corps into this bubble where they're they're cosmic and they're somewhere else and they're not necessarily interfacing with anyone else in the rest of the DC Universe. It's got its own mythology, their own villains and their own allies. And at some point, you've got to ask yourself, are they still policing? Are they still protecting their sectors? Or are they just involved in these endless wars with the other colors? There's some good in that, and there's also some bad in that, but uh, it did save them from uh, the flush point, because everything was flushed away except except the Green Lanterns who were on their own doing something else. Uh, uh, so that wasn't rebooted, uh, just like Batman. Batman is bigger than DC Comics. Apparently. And then there's that Green Lantern stuff that is so separate anyways. It's not just about... Uh, being Jeff John's baby and him having so much control over DC's artistic direction. How do you reboot the rest of the universe? They didn't reboot Legion either, and that you know that's in its own bubble as well. So it works in that sense more than you know not rebooting Batman for whatever reason. Exactly. You can you can make Batman younger. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, the only thing I didn't really like about all the the color wheel thing is the black and the white. Black lanterns and white lanterns to me are kind of they're just too much. The, the I get the the black, you know, being death taking black hand from being a you know sea level villain to a cosmic force. I I get it, and, and it's fun. It's always fun to do that. But this zombie thing, it felt really fatty to me. You know, like, it's just, we want to do zombies too. And Marvel zombies? Yeah, we're doing, well, it's it's not, you know, it's, it's we're getting into that, like, what, 10th year of zombies everywhere? I get it. We've been around zombies. I'm sure if we had a zombie apocalypse, we wouldn't even be surprised. No. We'd know what to do. We have plans. <laughs> we have plans. I know where I'm going. Barricading Costco, and I'm, I'm living there for the rest of my life. But... You know, uh, the the black hand thing was, ugh, and the white lantern being like this super lanterny life bearing. I don't. I. It just all felt superfluous. Super superfluous. Uh, it's it's just too much. But I really like the other things because it's all kind of equal. We haven't mentioned the Green Lantern movie. Maybe we want to. Uh, nah, you know what? About that? I I own it. I do too, but I tend to own. Many superhero movies, both good and bad. We want, yeah, exactly. That's I. That's it's not with the <laughs> whether they're good or bad that makes me buy them. It's really if they're on sale or not. And uh, we did buy. I say we because I watch them with my son. 
And uh, I think it's important for him to know the difference between a good and bad movie. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we did watch it. He said the same things that I said. Because he's only five, he's going to be six soon. And but he loves superheroes and and comics and cartoons and everything. And you know, he was saying stuff like, "Is that the battery for his ring? Is that where's his? Is that his suit? Is it always going to be like that?" Please don't make the super suit green or animated. So even at his age, there was a disconnect between. Uh, Green Lantern as he imagined him and what he saw on screen? Yeah, exactly. Very much so. And But he didn't enjoy Ryan Reynolds. But who doesn't enjoy Ryan Reynolds? Right. I mean, Ryan Reynolds wasn't the problem with Al Jordan. Uh, it could have been. But, I mean, I think he's a great actor. I mean, yeah, and I think he could have been. Because that was maybe the first stone in the larger DCU movie thing. It, it was supposed to be like the start. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it wasn't. But that's not his fault. I think it was, you know, trying, and it's always the same thing with, it too, there's just too much CGI, and the CGI is not that great, and it always feels like, I feel like in 20 years, I'm going to look at these movies, and they're going to be like these weird claymation action movies I looked at when I was young, and my parents went, ugh, these, you're going to watch this? And I'm like, yeah, I love this claymation, but it's just claymation with computers. Well, I think Warner Brothers has that same problem with that movie that it does with its contemporary superhero movies, and that's trying to get a franchise out of it before it's earned that right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it ends with a tease that Sinestro goes bad because he's a Green Lantern and uh, Hal Jordan's trainer in the first film, and that he's going to be the villain in the next film. Except there is no next film, and you've spent all your energy, you've blown your wad on Hector Hammond as a villain. And why would you do that? I'm not saying Green Lantern has some great villains, to start with, but Hector Hammond. His rogue gallery is not that good. We're just a step away from uh, the, the tattooed man here. And they're bringing in the parallax stuff. It's like we're just trying to build into the DNA of the movie all the recent and popular storylines from the comics. And uh, so they have something to go back to where when there are sequels. But then you don't earn the right to have sequels. So it's all for, for nothing. It's like you went into the semifinals and you didn't want to play your 100% because... You wanted to keep some energy for the finals, but then you just don't reach the finals. And it's just like now. I don't want to get too deep into the, the Justice League movie that just released, but it doesn't match very well with BVS because that front-loaded so many things that now cannot pay off or whatever circumstance. Uh, and the movie missed a trick, we get back to Green Lantern, by not having a Green Lantern in the film. And I don't see this as, oh, uh, we need to recast Hal Jordan. It really, uh, if they wanted a black character in there, and uh, or more than one black character, then they should have gone with Jon Stewart instead of Cyborg or in addition to Cyborg. I think people still remember him as the Justice League cartoons Green Lantern. So he's in the public imagination. And the Hal Jordan that, that they've seen, if they've seen him, has failed. Yeah. And then you could actually say that that Green Lantern movie happened in the DCEU timeline and that, you know, Hal's just been replaced since then. Yeah. And that way you can keep Mark Strong, which was, I think, a good Sinestro. Yeah. And he would fit an Injustice League in a future movie. Absolutely. Why not? So you bring in a different Green Lantern. Do you still have a, a, a CG body just like cyborgs? Make the costume real, please. Make the, make the co- but but you know what? You have now you have two characters. You have cyborg and John Stewart, who who are both black characters, but have very different settings. You know, uh, cyborg is this young man, very athletic, very bright, 
but couldn't reach his potential. And when you have uh, John Stewart, whether uh, military or not, is an architect, uh, has reached this potential. And you can have interactions that are about this mentor thing. And just saying that Hal Jordan doesn't have to be the Green Lantern of this universe. Actually, you know what? With the younger Flash within that movie, we'd be better off having a Kyle Reiner. Uh, if, if you're going to go with a smart-ass, you know, younger type Green Lantern, Kyle Reiner would be a better fit with the Flash to have that kind of, you know, rookie dynamic, you know, working with legends type thing. You have these dynamics that you can have within a team that need to be exploited, right? Uh, you can't just have a bunch of legends to, together and not give them a dynamic or, or try to mechanically create a dynamic within them. Dynamics just happen in, in these... And it really needs more women. It can't just have Wonder Woman. No, you can't. It's the same thing with the black characters. I mean, we, we have a bunch of white guys and, you know, you have one girl... One black character. It's not representative of, you know, how it works. There's a certain tokenism to that uh, that's right out of the comics, uh, which is probably why uh, they're giving black actors the parts of the comics aliens, like uh, on Supergirl, the Martian Manhunter is played by a black actor. Well, I think I think that Martian Manhunter can be better understood by uh, a black character than a white guy. I don't think that a white guy can understand Martian Manhunter as well. Because Martian Manhunter, I mean, the Green Martian was uh, kind of outcast on his own planet. I mean, evil ones were white Martians. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> so basically it has to, uh, you can't understand that type of stuff or that feeling or understanding uh, how the dynamics of power work uh, unless you understand a little bit about oppression. And, and you have to if you want to play it. Uh, for real. Anyway, we're a little bit off the reservation here. We're a bit off, yeah. But... So, uh, Green Lantern, final thoughts? Well, I'm glad he's in there. I'm surprised that he's not having his own comics. But I, I think it's a transition thing. Yeah, it's post-crisis, and some characters haven't had their turn yet. You know, just Hawkman hasn't been rebooted yet, and Green Lantern gets soft rebooted within the year. I'm kind of unsure about where the Grey Temples come from. Yeah, it doesn't have the Grey Temples in this one. Yeah, by the time his uh, series comes back, they've sort of decided that because the Green Arrow has been living in real time, already at this point, Mike Grell decided that Green Arrow had been a hero all along. So he's older. And uh, since maybe because there is a connection between Green Lantern and Green Arrow because of their own series and to let that have happened, then Hal Jordan is going to be older as well. So they're both in their 40s let's say, instead of the perpetually 29 Superman and Batman. Well, Green Arrow has to be older. He's too bitter to be. <laughs> All right, we'll take a little break, and when we come back, your letters. Ooh, letters from the front. Letters from the front. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Paravec. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. 
Letters from the Front! Letters from the Front! We're talking about your comments on the all-Superman issue. Superman number 27 and Adventures of Superman number 450, the reveal that he was actually gangbuster all along. I love that. And his exile from Earth at the end of those issues. And um, these are your comments about that episode, which, uh, for the most part, can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Just like you can leave uh, comments on this particular episode, Starman number six and the Green Lantern. It's always much appreciated. Let's start with uh, Ange here. He says, great episode and great books. This era of Superman really was building something. Every arc seemed to nicely dovetail into the next. Every subplot seemed to lead to more subplots. Very good writers, good artists, good continuity all the way around. And because I sort of collapsed the whole history and especially Supergirl's bit uh, while we're in the podcast, and since Supergirl is Ange's expertise, uh, he felt the need to, to retread those bits and expand on them. So he says, while Clark is in space, Matrix uses her shape-changing abilities to actually become Clark, taking his place and acting as Superman in his absence. When he returns, they fight as Superman versus Superman. That's in Action Comics 644. She also has had a mental breakdown. And interestingly enough, she exiles herself to space as well. It sounds like a mirror of just what Clark went through. Ultimately, she leaves the Superman form behind and embraces the Supergirl form. But that is when Brainiac ends up dominating her will, making her a pawn for a short period of time, and in the end, she regains her freedom in Panic in the Sky and starts acting as Supergirl does. Alas, the creators like dragging her down a bit. She falls in love with the cloned, red-headed Lex Luthor, becoming his lover, and being basically controlled by him. It is only in Doomsday, Reign of the Superman, that she finally asserts herself as a hero on her own. Thanks for the corrections, Ange. Chris Franklin says, add me to the list who considered this era his own personal golden age for Superman. He also says, I really feel for Lana Lang in this era. It seems like Clark was always doing things to make her feel like he was finally going to commit to her, or that his love for her was more deeply romantic, and then he flies off, or goes for Lois. It's the closest post-crisis soups got to super dickery. I don't think it was intentional, but the poor woman can only take so much, especially from a godlike being with a heart of gold. Who wouldn't want to be with that guy? And here he is, swapping spit and flying off. Jeez, Clark. (laughs) And uh, he says, oh, and I really like Gangbuster's outfit. It was about 30 years ahead of its time, as it would fit right in on any of the DCCW shows. And of course, Wolfman and Ordway wanted to make Jose Delgado a new guardian, but the idea was nixed for some reason. So having Gangbuster fight Guardian is even more apt when you consider the backstory. Hmm. Then David A. Gutierrez says, Did that alien-hating Bast just say Gal Gadot's role in the Fast and the Furious series was unremarkable? Giselle was the heart of parts five and six, you monsters. Parts I didn't really see. I don't really care much for the Fast and Furious. The real truth here is that Bass doesn't care much for uh, Fast and the Furious. Actually, I, I really don't like Vin Diesel, but that's just me. And then everything else is a fruit of the poison tree. I kind of like everybody else. I just really don't like Vin Diesel. In movies, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I could probably hang out with him. We'd do CrossFit together. I don't know what he does. You don't CrossFit. I don't CrossFit. I would if he asked. But, you know, because who am I to say no? But, you know, I I just don't really enjoy Vin Diesel that much in movies. What about Groot? It's one, I mean, it's one sentence. Okay. And uh, I, I do commend him. I mean, he's great. He did it 275 times. It's great. But you know what? You know what? I'm on Team Rock. If I'm going with the feud between The Rock and uh, and Vin Diesel, I'm on The Rock's team. Now, Paul Hicks says, Oh man, this is right smack dab in the middle of my Superman era. I read this off the shelves as it shipped and remember piecing the gangbuster puzzle together just before the second part shipped. 
Also, Australia is a pretty big place, so I presume the invaders were sightseeing when they crashed at Uluru. Or escaping, you know, escaping. And then he corrects me, saying Superman hasn't quite left the story as much as I think. It is true that he doesn't return to Earth in the course of Invasion 3, but I guess he is in Invasion 3. Nice fake out, though. Oh my god. Michael Bailey says, and this is certainly his golden age of Superman, he's well known for it. He says the execution of the Phantom Zone villains in the pocket universe was Burns' last issue. Uh, I'm not going to argue the merits of Superman killing because that's a discussion in and of itself. But I will say that in terms of dealing with such an event, the creative teams that followed Byrne did an amazing job in having him come to terms with his actions. On Jonathan's military career, it did change slightly during the post-crisis uh, era. In World of Smallville, published earlier in 1988, Jonathan came home from World War II. By the death of Superman, this was changed to Korea. The sliding scale of time. Sliding scale. He says Jonathan and Martha were fantastic during this era. You could make the argument that their deaths serve to show Clark that with all the things he can do, all his powers, there are things he can't control. It's a good argument, but ultimately, having them around serves to give Clark a place to go for comfort and support. Also, I'm never really comfortable with saying, yeah, his parents should die to teach him a lesson. That seems a bit cold-hearted. Yeah, I prefer his parents alive. Uh, yeah, me too, because it, it, it adds also to the can the contrast of him and Batman. Why do all these superheroes have to have dead parents anyway? Uh, because, uh, you know, they've done it to uh, Flash. Uh, that's a, something Jeff Johns wrote that's turned up in the TV series and in the Justice League movie. So I guess apparently it's now a defining trait. Green Lantern has had his father die in a plane crash, also Jeff Johns. Yeah, he's really trying to Batman everybody. You can't Batman everybody. And you know what? Sometimes um, having good parents, because Clark had good parents, mm -hmm. and they're wonderful you know uh counselors and the he would go to them for you know for comfort but also for counsel and that's a big part of superman and if you just kill that off superman has to figure everything out by himself and he's not defined by their deaths you don't need to and i think uh superman was is kind of an icon for people who you know maybe have different parents mm, yeah, adopted yeah, yeah so why would you kill why would you kill that off or for anything else than just making him sad, really. Because yeah. it's not going to define him. It's well, not going to help him. I think a lot of writers tend to default to the uh, Richard Donner movie. So uh, Paquette dies in that. Yeah, yeah, he has a heart attack. and So they feel they need to play that beat every time because it's something that people know. Well, screw that. Well, you know, that moment only pushes Clark to go forward and not stay home basically but it doesn't define superman the definition of superman is how he was raised it's mm -hmm. the push out of the out of the nest yeah. and so many people have problems with at least one of their parents that uh, a real supportive family unit like that is at once ideal and probably um probably true to life for many people but something to aspire to as a family so um I think it's it's a lot better to have that in there, whether you think it's unusual or not, than to basically say that you have to be an orphan to put on a costume. Exactly. Michael goes on, as I'm just basically reading excerpts from his novel here. He says, Some people call this version of the character the Burn Superman, but I would argue that while Burn got the ball rolling and revamped Superman for a new generation, this really should be called the Carlin era. After Burn left... Carlin, the editor, was the guiding force for the Man of Steel. Ordway stayed on, but getting Roger Stern, Dan Jurgens, George Perez, and then Louise Simonson and John Bogdanovi on the various titles, and then turning those two, then three, then four books into what was ostensibly a weekly Superman comic, 
I think it's safe to say that the great Carlini really did pull a rabbit out of his hat. Yeah, it was a monumental editing effort. He also said, in case we weren't aware, there's an omnibus coming out next year that reprints all of the stories from Burn Leaving to Just After Exile. I'm so excited this is happening. Oh my god, really? So you can get these issues as an omnibus. I will. Rob Kelly says, Man, Carrie Gamble and Bread Breeding are a perfect art combo for Superman. I didn't read this era of the book, but it looks terrific. And on a related note, the minute I heard Bass say anything less than total love for the work of Gal Gadot, I pictured uh, David A. Gutierrez furiously typing. <laughs> so Rob was one of the few people who could say uh, that this was his personal Superman golden age. Well, <laughs> so. wait till he reads them. But yeah, there's an omnibus coming out, Rob. I'm so getting that, Rob. <laughs> Tim Price says, so heartening to see all the love for this Superman era. Count me in, too. I don't know if it's obvious, but Burns' last issue was Superman number 22. This is a mere six issues later and the second month of a crossover event. So this whole Superman gangbuster story happened over less than 12 comics between Superman and Adventures of. Not very long by some standards, but it didn't feel rushed at all. Gamel's artwork always gets a must-have for me. He and Breeding are a terribly underappreciated team. And they can talk about the art, of course, because we do put some pictures pulled from the comics that we cover at fireandwaterpodcast.com. There's like this extra thing where you can see like images and right. just move Select along. Images. Michelle Fief sent me a link to the um, Comics Journal blog. That's, of course, the magazine that uh, takes a critical view of the comics form. And they've also got a website and thus a blog. This one written by Tucker Stone. He mentions our show. Really? Wait a minute. Does, it, does he say we're idiots or is it nice? Well, I'll read the whole thing. Not the whole blog because it's about many things, but there is this section called Reviews and Sundry. He says, I was delighted to discover that not only is there a podcast completely dedicated to the best superhero summer event comic of all time, but that said podcast already has 28 episodes online. Now 29. Cool. And I did see an uptick in views on that last episode to which the link brought people. You may be a new listener. Thank you, Comics Journal, and thank you, Michelle Fee, for sending me that link. Facebook likes and shares. From Aaron Headmoss of the Headcast Network, which includes the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, the G.I. Joe Real American Headcast, and Task Force X. Abel Padilla, who says it's been fun to follow along, and seeing that creepy Dominator head whenever a new episode hits makes me wish the DCCW shows had stayed with the Piranha Teeth design. That's our banner he's talking about. Uh, Alan Middleton, Billy Lacasse, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, D-Bash, Derek William Crabb, Douglas Evasic, Gene Hendricks, Glenn Clark, Gord Tolton, John Tipton, Kirol Hezri, Kiji Baker, Lava Hog, Long Box of Darkness, Mark Baker Wright, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Nicholas Brom, Ryan Daly, Sean Ross, Thomas Fovey, and Zoom Yukonori. On Google+, Plus, we got plussed by the Hammer Strikes, and on Twitter, retweets and favorites from Cash Flag, Chris, Coffee and Comics, Collected Editions, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Daniel R. Budnick, who says, Good times. David S. Gutierrez, despite his anger. DGC Studios, the irredeemable shag of Firestorm fan. Greg A. Hicks, Jeffrey Brown, Connell, Kristen Clark, Kyle Benning likes comics, so do we. Mark Danvers, Martin Gray, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Michael Bailey, Michael O'Brien, Michelle Fief, who says these issues mean the world to me, which is probably why I like Gangbusters costume. Nick, Radio of Horror Shows, Richard Kennedy, Rob Kelly, creative of Film and Water Podcast, Treasury Comics, Superman Movie Minute, Hostess Ads, Pod Dylan, and Digest Cast, Rolled Spine Podcast, Super Roly, Tim Price, and Warlock Thanos Podcast. Wow. Thank you very much, everybody. And again, if you want to leave comments on this particular episode, you can go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and leave it there, or on the Facebook page, or uh, on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcasts. 
next time on First Strike Invasion Podcast, Suicide Squad number 23.